are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello there, welcome to this week's podcast. This week we're going to hear the conversation that I had with a lady called Dr. Trisha Greenhow. Now, Dr. Greenhow did was one of the authors on a paper that was recently published titled Six Biases Against Patients and Carers in Evidence-Based Medicine. So I was super excited when I read this um, article. I'm part of a special interest group, a SIG, we call them, for AED, um, that's titled The SIG is called Experts by Experience. And um, so this is a special interest group that... AED has that is made up of patients and carers um, to and we do all sorts of things and we talk about all sorts of things and we we try and actually influence um, AED I guess and um, exert our influence as what we call patient experts by experience so people who have who are professionals in the field of eating disorders not because they went to school necessarily and learnt about those things, but through direct experience. And um, we think that's really important. So one of the reasons I was very excited about this paper is because there's a lot of validation for those of us who are experts by experience in here. Anyway, without further ado, let's get on with this conversation. This is Dr. Trisha Greenhow. Yeah, sure. So the first thing we need to explain is what on earth is evidence-based medicine? You know, it's a word that most of us have heard of, but but what does it mean? And, and why am I taking a shot at it? Uh, well, first of all, evidence-based medicine generally is taken to mean basing medical decisions and, and nursing decisions, you know, clinical decisions on the results of really well-conducted research. So that's something that I'm very keen on, of course, being an academic. Um, I'm a cancer survivor myself, and I'm only alive because the research uh, that was done was used to influence uh, the, the treatment decisions and the drugs that I was given, which cured my cancer. So I'm not opposed to evidence-based medicine. Um, so what's this paper about? The paper is about the rather subtle biases that can creep in, even into very rigorously conducted research. Uh, so in a way, it's, um, it, it, it's taking a slightly rhetorical shot, because of course you think that if it's evidence-based, it, it's not biased. And so it's a deliberately pro- provocative title to make academic researchers sit up and listen Uh, How on earth could our wonderfully designed research be biased? So so that's the that's the sort of setup for the for the paper. And I can tell you that that some researchers weren't very keen when this paper was published. So shall I go through some of the biases? I I would love you to. And I'm not at all surprised that some researchers weren't keen when this was published. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. So, so of course, with with if you're a trialist, a trialist being a researcher who does trials, and a trial is an experiment in which you randomly allocate 
half the patients to one treatment and half the patients to another, perhaps to a placebo. Um, and what they generally mean by bias is have you made sure that you haven't uh, included any biases in the way you've allocated people so that you've got all the healthy ones in one group, for example. But that's not what, how I'm using the term bias. I should say, by the way, it's not just my paper. It was written by, I think there were four of us on, on, on the author list. Uh, so, you know, let's, let's acknowledge that this isn't my, my own sole work. Okay, so the first bias that I talk about is that actually... Most of the research on which medical decisions are currently based doesn't have input from patients. Now, that's not because patients are not involved in current research. I mean, particularly in the UK, there's loads and loads of opportunities for patients and the parents or carers of patients to get involved in research. There's a group called Involve. Uh, and if you put the word Involve into Google, you'll, you'll find ways of... of finding in your local area uh, opportunities for, for getting involved in, in clinical trials and, and suggesting uh, ways in which research might become more patient-centered. But the plain fact is that the treatment decisions that most doctors are making are based on research that was done 10, 20, or even longer years ago. And at that time, there wasn't a culture in involving patients. Um, and um, for example, in, in, the, um, in the paper, we talk about a, a big research trial called the Diabetes Control and Complications Trial. And that trial was done between 1983 and 1993. So I just qualified as a doctor in 1983. I was actually partly um, involved in this trial. Uh, and people with diabetes were randomized to receive one of two different treatments uh, for diabetes. And the researchers rather dismissed certain side effects, for example, the severe hypoglycemia, which is when your blood sugar drops too low because you've had just slightly too much insulin. Now, as far as the researchers were concerned, that was a minor side effect. But actually, the patients were saying, listen, this is absolutely dreadful. We don't want this. It's, this is terrible. It will stop us driving, you know, all that kind of thing. Uh, and, and if the patients had been involved in the design of that study, uh, they might have put a bit more weight onto the significance of that side effect. So that particular trial came to the conclusion that people with diabetes should be treated much more aggressively with bigger doses of insulin. And the patients were saying, no, this is not worth the candle. Uh, so, so that's just an example of an inherent bias in the design of the, of the research. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, so I'm just thinking because... Obviously, my experiences in eating disorders, and um, I think that in the mental health field, I can see where this sort of bias comes in when um, some researchers get very keen, and a lot of, um, I guess, psychology is theory. It's difficult to prove, and a lot of researchers get very keen on an idea, such as um, parents are behind anorexia, and there may be very many patients that are saying, that's not my experience. But yeah. they're just not included in that research. They only research people who have had a troubling, traumatic childhood. That's just the sort of thing that comes to mind. Um, it's it's also it's certainly true that that some people with anorexia have a troubling, traumatic childhood. 
but it's certainly not true. It's also true that a lot of people without anorexia have that. So yes. Yeah, and so it brings up a lot of actually um, arguments within the field because we we have some some people saying, look, this this is um, this research shows that anorexia is due to X. <laughs> and that's a load of people saying, well, I never had X and I have anorexia, so yeah. how can that be true? And yeah. it, it really causes problems. And of course, if you've already framed the question, it's a very good example, isn't it? You know, I, I, I guess we, it would be a little bit more nuanced than anorexia is caused by parents. But it's a very good example of this is a particular framing of the um, of the research. And then, of course, the evidence that you collect might tend to confirm the view that you had simply because that's where you're focusing, not because you're doing bad research, but because you've kind of pointed your research nose in a particular direction. Uh, and one of the things that patient involvement or carer involvement would do is perhaps suggest to the researchers that there might be a different direction to point the research nose towards. Um, and I think that that, that is you know, absolutely critical. Um, and that's what this paper is all about. Um, I, I guess I could talk about the next bias, actually. It's a bit like Desert Island Discs, isn't it? Let's have another bias. Another um, bias. And your favourite track at the same time. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Yeah, I wonder why someone doesn't ask me. Anyway. Maybe they will now. Yeah, maybe they will. Um, so... Another thing about evidence-based medicine is they really do like randomized controlled trials because they're scientific and you're randomly allocating people to one thing or the other. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, and then they have uh, what's called a hierarchy of evidence. And they say, well, of course, below the randomized controlled trial are other forms of experiments, you know, in which people aren't properly randomized. And then right at the bottom of this hierarchy of evidence is what they call the individual patient experience. Well, you know, that's all very well, but there is also an argument that says, hang on, we are experts by experience. And for example, actually, since I wrote this paper, I, I, you know, I've been through cancer treatment myself, and I can tell you that I might have known quite a lot about cancer as a doctor, but I know a heck of a lot more about cancer now I've experienced it as a patient. Um, and I remember, for example, asking my oncologist, um, would I be able to go home on the tube after, when I was living in London, uh, after chemotherapy? And she said, oh, yes, that would be perfectly fine. Well, after being filled up with chemotherapy for three hours, I can tell you it is not possible to go home on the tube. Um, you just really don't feel well enough. And then I realized what I'd asked my oncologist was advice about the patient experience. She wouldn't have had any idea as to whether, how, whether I'd feel well enough. Now, the idea that those experiences, what's it like to have, you know, bulimia or whatever it might be, or, or what's it like to experience a particular treatment, that is not a question that can be answered through an experiment. The only way you can find out is ask people who've experienced it. And so this hierarchy of evidence that says the patient experience is necessarily less valuable or less trustworthy than the results of a, of a trial um, is a bit skewy. It depends what you want to know. You know, if the aspect of the illness that you want to research is the patient experience, and that should be right at the top of the hierarchy of evidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I can, and as as you well understand from from your experience as a cancer patient, and um, 
it can be incredibly frustrating as a patient to, um, well, in, in your case, you were, you were just given ra- very unhelpful information. I think in the mental health field, we're often told how we're feeling or yes. why we're feeling how we're feeling. <laughs> and it's then very difficult to say, especially to a professional, it's sometimes hard to speak up and actually say, well, no, actually, that's not the reason I'm doing X. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And I think one of the things about the clinical consultation is that it is a very power charged social interaction. Uh, and even when you are middle class, articulate, educated, you read it all up on the Internet before you go in, you walk into that room and then guess who's got the power? Guess who controls the use of time, for example? You know, you, you know, you've got enough, as much time as the clinician feels that you deserve and then you'll be shown the door. And so you're under time pressure and all those kind of things. Um, anyway, that's perhaps getting off the topic of research. So the next bias that I talk about in the paper is the idea that the way the evidence-based medicine community tend to think about involving patients is through these things called shared decision-making tools. Uh, So they're they're, they're often rather geeky, these evidence-based medicine people. So so they'll have an app, for example, or a, a, a diagram or a chart, and they'll say, now, I'd like you to look at this chart and put your finger on where your feet, what you're feeling, or, you know, which which thing do you want out of the list that I'm showing you? And I think shared decision-making tools are, are quite useful sometimes, but actually they're also a, a, a rather distorted way of having a democratic conversation about management decisions. Uh, the, 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 the good thing about the shared decision-making tools is you can populate them with the results of research you can say well look you know would you like an operation and if you do it's got a 10 percent chance of curing you and you know that kind of thing on the other hand you know that's not the way we normally talk to people um it's a very scripted way of having conversations and actually it's also kind of um putting a particular agenda to the patient rather than saying to the patient, well, what would you like to talk about? Uh, So, you know, I do take a shot at at shared decision-making tools. Um, The next bias we talk about in the paper is about power imbalances, which I think we've really sort of gone through. Um, I don't know whether you want to talk a bit more about power. Yeah, I'd love to talk a little bit more about power. <laughs> well, I think one of the things that is that came up when we were looking at the literature uh, was the idea that the doctor's evidence tends to trump the patient's evidence. Uh, and it may be that the patient, particularly if you're the parent of a, of, of a youngster with an illness, I've got a, a friend whose whose baby has just been diagnosed with something and she's become an absolute expert on this particular rare condition very quickly because, of course, she's reading everything that there is. Uh, and she will take the baby to the GP who's got to know about a lot of other conditions as well. And so that GP actually knows less about this particular disease than, than the patient or than the parent does. But the power dynamic is such that... Um, the bit that the doctor knows or believes they know is going to is going to override what the patient is saying, which is actually a rather more nuanced version. 
Um, and that, you know, I'd quite like to see more research into that. So, so how about the what a parent might be saying? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And actually, a few years ago, I did some research into children with meningitis, you know, the bad form of meningitis, the, the meningococcal one. Um, and one of the really interesting things about that is that it's often not a particular physical sign that indicates that this baby or young child is very sick. It's often just that the parent feels that things are not right, that this child is sicker than they have ever been. And so the parent will go to the GP and say, look, you know, my, my two-year-old is really, really ill. And, the, you know, the doctor will take that temperature and they'll look and they can't see a rash and all that kind of thing. And they'll send them away. Whereas actually the research says you've, you've really got to play the hunch that the parent is, right. is showing you because there's something intuitive. Uh, you know, it's not something that the parent can articulate. It's not something you can measure. But actually the parent saying there's something wrong. I mean, we all know there are some parents who are clueless. There are some parents who are over anxious. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but I'm saying we should also take account of the fact that um, there's something that there is quite a good evidence base for parental intuition. Yeah, this is quite a minefield in the eating disorder field because due to probably yonks ago something some somebody somewhere said that parents cause eating disorders and then so even at the GP level now some people still believe that and it means that as soon as in some cases as soon as an eating disorder is mentioned the doctor won't have anything to do with the parent and and starts to play the game of sort of trying to get the kid away from the parent and it's just a lot of the time I'm not saying the parent is seen as part of the problem yes the parent is seen as part of the problem and Ah. and so then a lot of the and eating disorders the nature of them a lot of the time when we are sick we can be quite um, dishonest say about how much we're eating and things like that so really parental input is a huge is a huge factor for uh, a clinician to get the whole picture of what's actually going on um, and if they're not willing to talk to the parent because they believe the parent is the problem because somebody somewhere ages ago decided that <laughs> that was the case. Um, it, it's This is, I think, one of the largest problems in the eating disorder field. Um, that this this it's it's like a stigma type thing it's just yeah 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 absolutely and 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 interesting people are probably clinicians are probably um shaping what they're doing there with all sorts of unconscious assumptions and those are things that don't get researched you know there's a big research agenda here isn't there um interesting so another of the biases that we talk about in the paper is that evidence-based medicine tends to overemphasize what goes on in the clinical consultation. Uh, and you know, and people listening will know, that most of the time with your illness, you're not sitting there talking to the doctor or nurse. Most of the time you're managing your illness at home, at school, at work, in your home, in your daily life. And then you know, every few weeks or months, you go and see the doctor. And of course, most research into um, clinical decisions happens in that clinic room, um, because th that's easy for researchers to zoom in and study that. But actually, most decisions about any illness are, ha are made outside the clinic. 
And I think I would like to see research move beyond the clinic. Um, and, you know, just as an example from my own work, there's been hundreds, literally hundreds of studies of what people with diabetes eat. And most of those have been based on questionnaires that have been given to people while they've been sitting in clinic or waiting to go into clinic. Almost nobody in the world from a researcher perspective, has actually gone to visit people with diabetes and spent the day with them and watched what they actually ate and talked right. to them about what they're actually eating. And we did that and we, we found some very interesting things. Um, for example, we found that, and actually with, with, with your eating disorders people, they'd be quite interested in this probably, we found that eating was generally an emotional experience. So, for example, we went to a pub with a, 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 a chap and his partner and his partner was getting all upset about the amount of beer he was having because she said that's going to upset your diabetes and then we're going to have a ruined weekend with your blood sugar all over the place. Uh, and he was saying, well, why can't I have a beer? Now, they've given consent for us to do the research and talk about them. But, but the point about it is if you got them to fill in a questionnaire in clinic you might get the bit about how much beer you drink, but you wouldn't have got the bit about the fact that this was a, an ongoing source of argument in, in this couple as to whether or not it was appropriate for this poor chap to have a pint of beer in the mm, evening. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the emotional dimension of eating, the fact that eating is in, in a social context, um, actually hasn't been researched very much because of the way eating is researched, um, which is which is a sort of factual thing about how many carbohydrates you've consumed and that kind of thing. Um, and I think it's about time we the researchers actually came out of the clinic and into the real world and did more research in that way. Wow, yeah. <laughs> I'd love for that. Yeah, yeah, I thought you might I thought you might like that one. <laughs> um, the the last bias that we talk about in the paper is actually the bias of People who don't go to the doctor, and I don't mean those people are biased, I mean research is biased towards people who actually seek care, whereas there's all sorts of people who might have symptoms, who might have a medical condition, but who just don't go to the doctor. And as you can imagine, those individuals are often more needy. They may actually have a more serious version of the condition. Um, because it hasn't been treated, it hasn't been diagnosed, and perhaps because there is other things going on in their lives. You know, they may be homeless, they may be uh, a limited English speaker, all that kind of thing. And it's about time we tried a bit harder to redress the balance because, you know, at the moment, quite a lot of research is biased towards people who are white, not necessarily middle class, but certainly who, who are... Um, in mainstream society rather than at the margins of society. So I'm talking about socially excluded groups. Uh, you know, you can imagine that the groups that are under-researched, LGBT, um, some ethnic minorities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think researchers really do have a responsibility to redress those balances because at the moment, the results of research pertain to the sort of stereotypical textbook patient 
And as your listeners will know, not everybody is that. In fact, probably a majority of people don't fit the textbook. No, and this is so true in the eating disorder field because if if you don't know much about eating disorders, you're going to assume that the person who gets anorexia is a 15-year-old white girl. And yeah, 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 at public school, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's um, so adults, who develop, people who develop um, anorexia, say, over the age of 20, are often very overlooked and often they don't seek care because they've got families and they don't have time and it's just not been be- being picked up when they go to their GP because the GPs aren't looking for it. Uh, men and boys, uh, I, I'm convinced that it's a 50-50 split, actually, as to, yeah, um, but guys don't get diagnosed because... Maybe they're just super into the gym. Maybe they're just, well, you know, it's, yes, it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I don't know very much about eating disorders, but I, I have um, worked a lot with athletes um, in the past. And actually, I would say that there's an awful lot of eating disorders missed in the gym. Right. Um, and and they present slightly differently in guys often, um, but it's... <laughs> It's the same problem, and but it's it's so there's there's I can absolutely see um, how this this is so problematic in the eating disorder field, and as you've probably seen all over the place, in all that, yes, yeah, yeah, interesting. Okay, so we reached number six. Yeah, no, we've done six, really. We've done six, and that was six. Yeah, no, you've had six biases. So, in summary. What, what we, I mean, can you, <laughs> in Desert Island Disc, you pick a most important, you pick your favourite disc. So do, do you have a favourite bias? I guess the the favourite is the, I it's the first one, that the more we involve patients and carers in the design of research, and involve them democratically, so you can't just turn around to them and say, no, sorry, we don't agree with your suggestions. The more we involve patients and carers, the more likely research is going to reflect what really matters to patients and is going to generate the kind of findings that are that are going to that are going to help the majority of people with, with whatever condition it is. Yeah. And I know that this will rile up some people listening and it's it's actually quite funny. I think that a lot of, um, just in the eating disorder fields, a lot of patients and carers have been shouting about these things for a while and it hasn't been noticed and <laughs> now there's there's research. So that's that's great. There's, there's actually something to get behind and I think many will. And I, I think another large problem is that um, people who are not doctors can't really do research, can't publish papers. So it's, it's, that's, yeah. it's, well, it's not academic papers. Exactly. Um, and so it's, it's difficult for, say, a group of um, parents or carers to get together and say, we're going to look into this because this is important to us. They have to go and convince somebody else who might not think that that's very important at all that it's important enough to research. Yeah. So, so, and because of that, and it's usually papers that get presented at conferences and research and things like that, because of that, it's, it's not getting into the mainstream of the professional field for whatever that field of medicine is. Um, and it's not therefore being given the respect. Um, and the, some of these things are just as important as uh, medical developments and, um, some of them are more important. Some of them are more important. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. 
absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that especially in the eating disorder field, people are getting more fed up and more vocal and, and, and really are making a difference. And I'm, I'm grateful that AED even has a SIG, which is for experts by experience. Um, things like that are a great start. One of the, one of the biggest barriers though, I think that even what members of that SIG are trying to do is that because, um, people are, you know, these are, these are parents, these are, um, recovered people with anorexia, um, so, and may have other jobs. They're not necessarily working in the medical profession. They, they, conferences are really expensive to go to if you're not actually being supported by an organization to go and it's not necessarily a tax write-off because it's your job or anything like that. Um, and so while, while, while parents and carers and, and patients might be trying to get to conferences to show up and have a voice, there's a quite a, a cost to doing so. Yes, absolutely. I mean, Get on to Involve, NIHR Involve, because sometimes they've got a fund that will help fund patients to go to conferences. Um, but you know what? I'm not 100% convinced that allowing patients to have free places on com professional conferences is really going to change the power dynamic that much. I think it's one approach, but I think we need to do things that are slightly more radical than that. And I think that it's about getting the professionals to come out of their comfort zones uh, and attend patient meetings, patient groups. So, for example, you know, talking about I, I was uh, involved in an online breast cancer group for a long time and I found it really useful. But that was there weren't any doctors in that group. Um, I mean, the people that I was joining in with didn't know that I was a doctor, and I certainly wasn't there as a doctor. But, you know, it, it was somewhere – it was a lovely space. But that's – that kind, those kind of spaces, um, it would be nice if the doctors and the researchers humbly approached, um, you know, patient support groups or carer support groups and said, you know, would you mind if we behaved ourselves very well, would you allow us to come along and learn from you type thing? I think that's a much more radical model than saying, all right, we'll give two free places at this medical conference with a thousand doctors. And, and then you get the two patients going along and being used for the photo opportunities, but not really listened to. You know, I, mean, I mean, people clap very, very, you know, volubly when they've given their little talk but it's not as if that really changes the agenda in right experience. I'm, all, I, I'm fascinated as to why as, as you said um, doctors aren't necessarily trying to actively get into patient spaces and listen um, it would seem that if you, if you were working in a field of medicine and you were treating these people I, it would it would see I would feel that the doctors would be trying to get all over those spaces. Why do you think that that's not happening? Um, well, I think it's because they don't feel comfortable. It's because they it, it's not run according to their rules. You know, they're not in charge. Um, so I, I'm not saying all doctors are bad or all researchers are bad, but I'm saying that there, there's a power dynamic here, and there's a you know. If, it, if it's the patient going to the doctor's conference, then then it's the doctors who set the agenda. Once you say to the doctor, would you like to come along and listen to us? Then actually you've got a 
you've got to, you the doctor have got to shut up and listen yeah I, I think especially in the field of mental health there's even more of that power dynamic <laughs> oh yes and and actually you know the survivor movement in in mental health is one of the best examples of hang on whose agenda are we talking about um and who, whose agenda is legitimate you know those those really radical questions and that's why i think i'm not actually sure that those questions are ever going to become mainstreamed at medical conferences sociology is a different matter because sociology has always been the kind of radical cousin um they've got some really interesting conferences Huge thank you to Dr. Trisha Greenhow for talking to me, taking the time to talk to me through her research there and um, explain the six biases. Those six biases were not written specifically for eating disorders. It wasn't this research field, it was medical field in general. It wasn't specifically eating disorders. But I think that every single one of them is applicable to the field of eating disorders. And I think that it's wonderful that this has been brought to light and these biases can now be addressed. I think that really what we're talking about here when we talk about experts by experience and patients and carers and is we're talking about lived experience. And I think lived experience is something that's often sort of brushed aside as, well, you know, not, not as important as, as maybe other types of research. Um, lived experience is life and so I think that it's one of the most important areas that we should be researching and that should be respected because research and theory is nothing if it's not applicable to real life and whatever research you could you could do all the trials in the world and it could come to a conclusion but if the people for whom those trials were designed to help says this isn't true for me this isn't helping it means nothing it's got no value in the real world and sometimes i think that um, medical research is falls into that category of not being that valuable in real life lived experience tells us that it tells us these differences and no we do not all have the same lived experience but there are similarities and even within that we can talk about the differences and talk about how for each difference there is there may be a different path that's actually exactly what lived experience can give us it's not saying that we all have to have the same experience it's saying that we can build we can use all of these experiences to build a, a database of knowledge and understanding and compassion and hopefully ideas and movements forward for people who are currently suffering. I thought that was just, I'm so pleased this paper has come out. Um, so there were six biases talked about there. Maybe you can think of another one. Can you think of a seventh bias? Does something come to mind for you? If you do, I, I'm re really interested to hear your thoughts. And you can email me. My email address is info at if you can think of any other biases, or even if you have any comments in general on this research, maybe you don't agree that these biases exist, and I think that would be interesting to hear as well. Maybe you do agree that these biases exist, and you have a personal story to help explain how and why these biases affected you. I think this is all important, and I encourage you to reach out and share your thoughts and share your story.
Thank you for listening. Cheers and until next time. Cheerio.